Kat Chow, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your memoir is called Seeing Ghosts, and it's out now. Thank you so much for having me on. And I have to say, your English is really good. <laughs> well, you know, growing up, the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong in uh, a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love to say my English is great. <laughs> It's one of those questions that people like you and I get all the time. Mm -hmm. Where are you really from? My answer is always Boston. <laughs> yeah, Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. So can we yeah. talk about Seeing Ghosts and where the title comes from? Because it's a fantastic title. Thank you so much. I love this title so much. I mean, I love this book with all my heart. This book is about my family and the waves of loss that we have experienced over generations. And it basically follows... Me as I explore the death of my mother, who I lost when I was a young girl, I was 13. I've always seen grief as, in a way, this haunting thing that comes back into your life and it just appears, you know, when you least expect it. And I wanted this book, Seeing Ghosts, to make sense of this loss. And not even just grief as the death of my mother, but loss as something my family experienced over generations with immigration from China to places like Cuba and also America. And the idea of ghosts are memories and these things that we are trying to hold on to or exorcise from ourselves. There is, you know, a theme of my mother appearing as this almost ghost-like figure, but I'll leave it to the reader to figure out if she's truly a ghost or if this is just sort of like a metaphor. <laughs> I know you've been a reporter for a long time, but when and how did you decide to write a book this personal? Writing has always been the way I've made sense on a very, very personal level for myself and not for other people to consume. It's it's how I've processed a lot of grief ever since I was a young girl and my mother passed away. I had some wonderful English teachers who kind of took me under their wings. I think they realized that I might not have been getting the support I needed at home and sort of pushed me into poetry and writing for myself. I've always been very comfortable in this private form of expression. I started working as a reporter immediately after college, and I was so driven to understand the ways in which people like us, people of Asian descent or people who are immigrants or the children of immigrants, move about in the world and the joys and, and ways they experience everything. I think I've just always been drawn to trying to work through and examine how my family had come up together and the ways that we experience the world in these negative spaces. It really just started in earnest maybe five or six years ago where I realized that this was something that I needed to do. I just felt this compulsion to keep writing about my family and, and try to tell this story about them that I knew I had. The American dream gets really complicated <laughs> when you're talking about your family, but your family's not alone in this by any stretch of the right. imagination. Right. I mean, there are so many variants of the American dream that were taught. My mother came here in 64 to go to college. Did she have intentions of returning to? Absolutely. Know, she was absolutely planning on going back to Tokyo and met my dad. But the American dream gets really tricky because we're also talking about access. You were very lucky. You got a great education. You mm -hmm. had teachers that were paying attention to what they thought you could do and what you what you should be doing in a way. Right. And that doesn't happen for a lot of kids. A lot of kids, they're either sort of dismissed because their English isn't great. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have the resources at home and teachers might be stretched. Yeah. yeah. I was so fortunate to have 
teachers who understood and identified this thing in me and, and saw that I really loved to write from a young age. And I had two older sisters who were wonderful and who guided me through so much. They were almost maternal figures in a way that other family members could not be. And it helped so much to have them. And even the ways they navigated being Chinese American was just so exemplary, where it was just without question who we were, nothing to be ashamed of. And it was so matter of fact. It was it was joyful. It was exciting. And, and yeah, at certain times growing up in Connecticut, it was not always easy, but that was who we were. <laughs> And you're really united with your sisters. It's fun to read about them in the book because they're keeping an eye on you as the baby, but they just seem like really great women. <laughs> yeah. And I think that my sisters had this deep love for me. So they're seven and nine years older than me. And when I came along as this baby, I'm pretty sure that my mom was always setting me up as the baby, as you mentioned. And she would mm. always tell my sister, Caroline, oh, Caroline, you're not the baby anymore. Or she would make excuses for me saying, oh, Caroline, she's just a baby. You can't be mad at her. But my sisters, they're so playful. They're so funny. They're so nurturing. One of the things that I really tried to do in this book is show the humor that is kind of this undercurrent in my family. And I wouldn't describe this book as an overtly funny book because it is so much about death, but I do have a kind of macabre sense of humor. And I think that is so much because of my mother and to a degree, my father's dryness and his wryness. And I talk a lot about the bodily humor that my mom used to employ that my sisters also kind of carry forward. And humor isn't necessarily something that people automatically think of when they're thinking about the American immigrant experience. Right. Regardless of where you're coming from, we're presented with these narratives where it's struggle, 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 or it's everything worked out. And here we are living exactly the way we want to live in exactly the place we want to live. And we don't think about what our backgrounds mean. And that's, yeah. that's your experience. That's your experience. Not judging it. It's really important though, when you're talking about how grief and trauma and tragedy pass through the generations of your family. Can we run through a little bit of your family tree? I mean, obviously we want people to go out and read the book. <laughs> there's so much to discover that's really wonderful. In some cases, charming. In some cases, shocking, but really wonderful. Yeah. But can we talk about your mom's family first and then your dad's family a little bit and then how it all comes together in Manchester, Connecticut? Absolutely. So my mother was born in a small village around Guangzhou in southern China. And she was the youngest of all of her siblings. And her mother at the time of her pregnancy was actually told not to go forward and have my mother because she had uterine cancer that the doctors were really concerned about. And at this time in China, abortion was not exactly a thing that many people were doing, I'm pretty sure. And my grandmother still tried to go forward with it, but ultimately it failed and she had my mother and died shortly after. And my mother and her older siblings, my Yima and my Kaofu, they eventually moved with the rest of their family and fled communism to Hong Kong, where they met their extended family and they all kind of lived together in a neighborhood there. With my father, he also had a somewhat similar story where, again, grew up in a village in southern China, had this family of incredibly strong women, my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And his father was not actually present because my grandfather, Hoikit, he was one of the thousands of men who actually left Southern China, the Pearl River Delta, 
and went to Cuba or places like Cuba to work. And if the Chinese Exclusion Act in America had not been enacted, there was a very good chance that he could have tried to go to California, for example. But my grandfather ended up working in restaurants in Havana and would send money back as remittances to my dad's family in China. My father actually never got the opportunity to meet his father. It's, it's a very convoluted way of saying his grandfather came back to China for some short time for my father's older brother's wedding. And that was when my father was conceived. And then my grandfather went back to Cuba and my father was born. And shortly after, my, my grandfather also passed. In both of my parents' lives, they didn't have access to certain parents. And that was something I was always very aware of. And so they go through their lives. They grew up as teenagers in Hong Kong, where they both ended up living, again, to flee communism. And they both, for various reasons, ended up in some Hartford, Connecticut suburb, where they met at a tag sale. <laughs> and, you know, you grew up in New England, so tag sale, not garage mm-hmm. sale, right? The lingo. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great story, though, because Manchester, Connecticut, there's not a huge population no. of Chinese Americans no. or Asian Americans. And the fact that they meet, it's kind of adorable. I mean, they meet, they speak the same dialect. Right. From the photographs, they're both adorable. They're both, they were both so beautiful. Uh, My dad, very handsome. My mother, very handsome. So yeah, they meet in Manchester, Connecticut, and they eventually had my sisters and me and formed their own unit in this very white place and were able to figure out a way to survive and really just kind of carry about their lives. It wasn't always easy and it was very difficult in a lot of respects, but they were really trying, or my mother and especially was really, really trying to make a life for us. And it also sounds like she was very happy to have three daughters that she could pass on a lot of no nonsense. Take yourself seriously. What are you looking to do? She wasn't just looking to say, I'm your mother, you have to do what I tell you to do. Yes. My mom, she seems like such a unique person and just so ferocious in her conviction of really parenting as well. But also, as I was saying before, had the goofiest sense of humor, would play pranks on us. From a very young age, one of the things that I loved to do and loved in general, I loved horses, which feels like such a Connecticut thing. I kept asking every single year, can can I ride a horse? Can I ride a horse? Can we get a horse? And my family's financial situation was... I didn't understand what it was. My mom was the the main breadwinner. She worked in insurance in Hartford as a database administrator. And that was the career she'd worked so hard for. I just assumed that we could afford it. And my mom eventually agreed and, and relented. And a part of it, I think, was as a way to sort of show to her father that our family had made it. But what I didn't understand at the time was how much my mother had sacrificed for me to ride horses, how much she had dug into her own retirement account and at at what cost there was so much. But she really, even from then for a hobby, tried to turn that into a career for me. And she really wanted me to be an equine vet. And thank God I'm not a horse vet right now. You know, I'm so bad at science. Like no one would want me near their horses if they were sick. (laughs) But all this to say, she, you know, she really tried to work to make sure that we were happy, which was really incredible. It's a powerful statement, too. We're talking about the 1980s in Connecticut. Yeah. And this is not long after women are finally able to get their own charge accounts and mortgages in their own names. There's a lot that we don't think about almost 40 years later because we kind of don't have to, but it wasn't that long ago. 
And even just talking with some of my mom's old coworkers or one of her really good friends who she worked with, you know, my mother was so ahead of her time in terms of the field that she worked in, which was very technical. And the fact that she started her career um, as a phlebotomist drawing blood (laughs) and then worked her way into something like database administration, that said so much. I mean, 1980s, not a lot of women and not a lot of people who are immigrants too in that field. And your mother knew what she was worth too. We have come further in our language and our HR understanding and other sort of <laughs> things since the 80s. But there were a couple of times where your mother would poke back yeah, when people so, were making jokes. Exactly. I mean, I did try to ask my father explicitly about what's the racism that my family encountered all those years ago. I interview him so much in the story and that becomes a big part of the narrative. But one of the instances that he brought up that he remembered almost immediately was a situation that my mom had at work where some coworkers were making probably very not politically correct off-color jokes. And my mother piped in and said, you know, I'm a double minority, a Chinese, as my dad says, and a woman, and I could go to HR. And the way my dad tells the story, the coworkers had no idea if she was kidding or if she was serious, if she was in on the joke or where. And he, to kind of imitate my mom, grinned really toothfully. And I just think that she really knew how to bite back to a degree. <laughs> it's kind of delightful, though, to know that your mother was needling people. <laughs> the model minority image has done so much damage in so many ways. And uh, yeah. there are still people who embrace it in the community. I mean, granted, at the time, women were not minorities, and they still are not minorities mm-hmm. in the United States. But yeah, it was really incredible to think about that and to kind of imagine where she would fit in conversations now today around gender and class and race. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what she would think if we would fight about politics or what, you know? So it's really fascinating. That's something that does come up too with your dad. He, at one point, you're talking about immigration with him as you're interviewing him. And he says, well, you've got to do it the right way. And he's not alone in that generation. He's absolutely not alone in feeling that, well, if you're going to come to the States, you you have to do it the right way. And, And certainly he came here to go to school and he did all the things that he needed to do. But life gets complicated and life gets messy and not everyone has that opportunity. And it's always fascinating to me because I would have these weird fights with my mother too, not necessarily about immigration, but other things mostly related to gender equality. Did your parents do the American name thing? Did they give themselves English? Yes, names? Yeah. they did. So my mother's English name was okay. Florence. But I write about it in the book as just imagining how she came up with it. And also my inability to speak Cantonese and pronounce her name in Chinese correctly. Her name in uh, Cantonese is Bomoy, which if you speak Cantonese and you're listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I got to record my audiobook, and the Cantonese was a really big struggle. My mom, who went by Bomoy, named herself, I think, Florence. And one of the things I'd always wondered was where that name came from. And one of the possibilities I landed on was because of Florence Nightingale, who was such a caretaker, um, who was very ahead of her time also in terms of science and pioneering in that industry, which was very male-dominated. I like to think that maybe my mom identified with her, and I found that really special. My mother dropped her American name, actually, in the 70s. I was really surprised and went back to her Japanese name. I always appreciate it. Honestly, I think it was probably when my parents got divorced. Right. Reclaiming a different identity. Nomenclature matters. It really really does. Matters. 
But you guys also spoke English at home. Yes. In my family, we spoke mostly English at home, except for probably very typical if you're Asian American, except for when your parents are screaming at you and they're just screaming the most creative Cantonese insults or calling you suipe, or which means water skin, uh, which also means sort of like worthless or lazy. I basically understand Cantonese in terms of food and family and things that probably a small child would know. <laughs> When you talk to your dad about his sense of identity, because he's been in the States since 69. He's been here a really long Right. Time. He has been here for so long. He describes himself as American Chinese, yes. which I found kind of fascinating. Can we talk about your dad for a second, just in terms of how he views himself? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. You know, so you're referring to one of my favorite parts of the book. It's just a transcription of this drive that I took with my father shortly after I graduated from college at the University of Washington. I think like a lot of kids of that age, 21, 22, I was very interested in parsing exactly what you would call someone or how you would identify. I mean, at the University of Washington, I took a lot of Asian American studies classes and was always really interested in the words we used to describe ourselves. And my dad, he just could not understand. He couldn't really care less. He was sort of of the mindset of, I've been in this country so long, it doesn't matter. To set that up though, he and I are in this car ride driving to my oldest sister Stephanie's house. And the only thing to do in my head was interview him. So I took out my phone and started videotaping us. And we had a really interesting conversation. And I'm going to try and find it. And maybe if it works out, I can read a little bit of it. I just wanted to pause and say, I got my hardcovers yesterday. They're beautiful. They're <laughs> and beautiful. I'm sort of, it's, it's so hard not to freak out about it. So in this conversation with my father, it's just a transcript. And I keep asking him things like, do you identify as American Chinese or Chinese? And he says, I think of myself as American Chinese. His response is just so matter of fact. He says, well, depending on who that person is, why would I care about what he feels? I'm my own person. That's okay for me. I go on to ask him if he ever thought like your mother, Miwa, if he was ever going to go back to China or if his goal was to always stay in America. And he told me that China has nothing for me. And then he kind of went on this long rant about communists. But <laughs> um, but that type of conversation was so typical for my father and I, where I'd kind of be trying to use my background as a reporter to just get close to him and understand him. And he would kind of say no to the questions or, or answer them or not. And by the end of that conversation, it comes to the question of the quote unquote American dream. And but he really thinks about it and what his own dreams are, because I've always had trouble understanding my father's intentions as this adult. And he says to me that there's always something you're looking forward to for you to achieve in order to get motivated to achieve that goal. These are transcriptions of what exactly he said. And I try and ask him what he does to move forward. And he kind of just says, oh, yeah, I do whatever I can one step at a time. And I do whatever I feel like I can enjoy doing. Then the con conversation kind of just cuts because he goes silent. And it was this really poignant moment where I felt like in asking him these questions, I'd maybe hurt something in him or I was really worried about that. And I don't know, it, it really became this tension where watching that video a decade later as someone who had been reporting for many years, it just reminded me how vulnerable it is to participate in any sort of interview where you're really giving a part of yourself up and especially interviewing family members. The line there is just so precarious and it's so, so, so delicate where 
my family, they were so receptive to talking for this book. And in a way though, I was always really cognizant of what my questions might do and what sort of pain it might open up for them. And we were a family that didn't talk a lot about these things as a kid. So this was really crucial. Your dad also had a motto of sorts that he used quite frequently when you were growing up and you reference it. Um, success makes a person survive. Yes. Do you think you finally figured out what he was talking about? That's such a good question. I love that question. I think I understand where he was coming from when he said it. So much of this book is about the idea of survival. And one of the questions that I used to write this entire book that a mentor from NPR actually helped me figure out, Keith Woods, he was one of my editors and he read many drafts of this book. And in the very, very early stages, when I was trying to figure out one of the driving forces, all of the things that I kept talking about and all the things that I kept showing him, Keith just said, one of the questions that you seem to be asking, but struggling to articulate, Kat, is what do we owe? And this idea of debt and what do we owe, I just, I understood that immediately as something that I saw as a thematic consistency throughout my life. What do we owe ourselves? What do we owe our families? What do we owe our cultures? What do we owe in terms of finances, debts? And it it just can take that to very concrete levels or very sort of metaphoric levels. And for my father, I think that he was always taught that specific benchmarks or things like property ownership or what have you. He was taught that by his mother. He was taught that that could be his way to independence and freedom. And he grew up under the specter of communism and was always kind of fleeing it. And that was in part why he left Hong Kong, because his mom just saw the political climate in the late 60s and thought that America might actually be a better place for him to make a life. And so my father, I think he sort of saw accomplishment as a way to stave off any any badness in our life, whether that's in a, to a degree racism, whether that's to a degree uncertainty. And it's always been something that he's held close to him and that he hasn't let his daughters are really into. But I think I understand it. I might not always agree and that, that might not be how I approach my own life, but it is something I think about a lot. And toward the end of the book, the idea of survival as it relates to my father comes up again because I visited to report out this book, a therapist that I had in high school. And it was so stunning to me because she told me, Caitlin, and that's my real name, Caitlin, (laughs) the way that you and your father grieved was just by trying to survive. And there again, what is grief if not survival and the act of it and trying to just get through it all? And I think until you've experienced that kind of catastrophic grief, it's hard to imagine what it actually is. There's some fantastic books out there. Sonali Duranyangala's Wave. Yes. What a fantastic book. Tiny, tiny, deceptively slim, but it opens with the tsunami in Sri Lanka. And by the end of this tiny book, you understand exactly what Sonali has lost. Yes. And it's really significant. Your family has that pulse of grief running through it. Your mother's died. You're very young when your mother dies. Your sisters are not that much older when your mother dies. And your dad's a little adrift after after your mother has died as well. So the idea that the four of you don't even have language really to describe what's happening, you actually just stop talking about 
your mother. Yes. It was as if she became sort of this taboo subject. And Mm. I think for my father, he found it so painful to hear about her. Of course, I didn't understand that as pain Mm -hmm. at the time as a teenager. I mean, we would argue about it and I'd be crying like a year after her death. And he would say, why are you crying? This is all in your head. And as a teenager who had so many feelings, that was preposterous. And I would say something like, of course, it's in my head. (laughs) This is where I'm feeling it. And I found this book and again, constructing it and turning my family's real experiences into an actual narrative and a story that I hope is beautiful. I found that to be a way of equipping myself with the language to talk about loss. And there are a couple of different points in the book too, where you say, I'm not ready to lose my mother. And by writing this book, I am going to lose my mother. Yes. Oh, that is such a good read of it. One of the questions that I ask in this book is, is writing a form of taxidermy or is it a form of exorcism. And taxidermy is another theme that comes up in this book because of like a very macabre joke that my mom made about when she passed eventually, she wanted me to get her stuffed and put in my living room. And of course, I don't think she actually meant that, but I use that image as a thematic tie throughout the book. And that's sort of where ghosts come in. But I keep asking in the book, am I preserving my mother or am I preserving my father in this book? Or am I in a way sort of letting that go? And I think those are very unanswerable questions. And Mm -hmm. I think the answer will change as I move through my life. And again, because my relationship with this book and the way I wrote it will change. But I think that's such an interesting question too, to ask if you've lost someone, what in your memory changes as you experience this memory again and again and again? Are you sort of letting them live on in memory? Are you allowing them to change and become something different with you? Or are you simply having the memories so that it can leave you? And I think that's that's going to be so different for each person. But I love that idea as a, as a question to always ask yourself. Couldn't it be both? Yeah, it can I be mean, everything. I mean, <laughs> death and grief are so complicated and they're not really processes to be managed. I mean, there's certain things you do, obviously, when someone dies. And yes, you fill out paperwork and decisions are made about other things. But grief can hit you at any moment in weird moments too. And you're just like, oh, hello, grief. (laughs) And, 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 you know, grief can get conflated with rage and grief can get conflated with lots of other things. And it's just such a weird experience. I mean, there are times where it feels like you're swimming in jello. And then there are other times where you're like, I just need to be left alone and no one needs to talk to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it it can come in so many forms too. Even now, one of the things that I think I chased in this book was this idea of my father as this potential future ghost or addressing his mortality, really. And that is something that is so, 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 for lack of better words, heartbreaking. And I think, especially for kids of immigrants, I I always have felt so, in a way, protective of my parents, despite the ways that we've hurt each other or the ways that we don't agree on things or the ways that we can't seem to close the distance between us. But when they pass, there's so much that goes missing along with them. It's this legacy of your family history and your, to a degree, your culture and your understanding of things. And so in a way, writing this book, sometimes it felt as though I was mourning or setting the groundwork for mourning in the future or almost kind of creating this memorial to him, this person who's still very much alive. But who you also really don't know, even though he's your dad. Yeah. And you write about a trip that you took with your sisters and your dad back to Hong Kong and China to wrap up some family business. And traveling with your dad is a little bit of a handful. (laughs) (laughs) 
you have a moment that really sort of hit me hard because you're standing in his first childhood home. And because you're all caught up in the moment, you want to see the village from the roof of the home, you sort of forget to ask him a couple of questions. And when you go back to ask him later, he either pretends to not know what you're asking him or actually doesn't know. Right. And I genuinely don't know because I've never met your dad. But having done that with elderly Asian relatives, it really could be either. <laughs> you really it really know. could be. I mean, are you just kind of pulling whatever? Or you, do you really not remember? I think uncertainty is one of the things that drives this book and also mm-hmm. makes it so empathetic and also makes me such an empathetic person where it was coming to terms with the fact that I might not ever know my father the way I want to. And it's just a matter of taking the pieces that he'll give to me, you know, as a reporter, but also as his daughter. And seeing what I can do to make sense of them. I think that a part of getting to know my father is just accepting the boundaries that he has. I think one of the ways that I've come to see my father is I might not really ever get to understand or know him completely, but I can take everything that he gives me, the pieces that he allows me to have, and I can see the the broader picture. And I think that's really powerful. You spent a lot of time interviewing your mother's sister, your mother's brother, Mm -hmm. your dad, your own sisters, and your mother's friends, obviously. You did report this story out, which is part of what I love about your memoir. But what are some of the other influences on this book? Who are some of the writers that you look to? Oh, I love this question. Diana Coy Wynn's poetry collection, Ghost Of, is It's one of my favorite poetry collections. She's just such a dynamic poet and the language that she uses is so haunting. And so her collection is about one of her siblings, a brother who passed away. And when he was alive, cut himself from family photographs and left these sort of negative spaces. And she, in a way, uses her poetry to actually inhabit these spaces he's left behind. I found that so compelling and such a beautiful way to look at grief and such a beautiful way to channel your grief. And that always kind of lingered with me. I read so much for this book. I did so much research. I mean, I was also reading about Hartford's demographics and I was reading a little bit of Asian American studies textbooks and a lot of poetry. I also read the memoir of a man named Young Wing, who, as scholars like to describe him, was one of the first Chinese-American men or Chinese immigrants to graduate from Yale University. I found him because he actually was also buried in the same Hertford Cemetery as my brother, who passed shortly after his birth. And Young was born in 1828, and he died in 1912, which was decades before my family even existed in Connecticut. And as a young girl, I would have found his existence so heartening because I grew up in Wethersfield. It's considered one of the most ancient towns in in Connecticut. I don't know if, you know, you're probably used to New England, things like that, where they really just like to stake a claim. (laughs) But as a kid in Wethersfield, we would always go to the houses of old white men named like Silas Dean or Isaac Stevens or William Butler or something like that. Those might not be their exact names, but it would have just been so kind of mind boggling to have visited the house of someone like Yang Wing, who was sort of like this diplomat. He very much considered himself grounded in America, even though he cared so deeply about China. He was married to a white American woman, which was, I think, considered very ahead of his time. He also had American citizenship, which was also very unusual in that time because of the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1882, which also ended basically in the 60s. 
so scholars will have their debates about him, but he was this kind of incredible figure who was really ahead of his time. And he had this wonderful, very slim memoir called My Life in China and America. <laughs> so it had a very, had a very straightforward well. title. Yeah. Um, so I, I would sort of read a lot of texts like that and you know, read scholarly articles about Yang Wing and also read a little bit of Borges because for one draft of this book, there were a ton of footnotes. <laughs> so I would just let myself go down rabbit holes, which I found so exciting and a really big part of this process. What do you want people to know about seeing ghosts? I want people to know that seeing ghosts isn't just about my family, but the context in which we exist and existed and all of the structures and systems that we worked through in order to survive and at times thrive. And I think that's what makes this book so complicated and hopefully beautiful. It's all of those. When do we get to start calling immigrant stories American stories? I love that question, Miwa. And I think the idea of American family and insisting we are an American family is so important and something that I've been pushing for. On the jacket of this book, there's a description and there's, you know, seeing ghosts asks what it means to reclaim and tell these stories. Is writing an exorcism or is, is it its own form of preservation? The result is an extraordinary contribution to the literature of the American family. I didn't say immigrant family. I didn't say Chinese American family. I think in general terms like Chinese American are are fraught because, you know, why not call myself Hong Konger? But even so, our family is an American family. And this story is an American story. And having to insist on that is, is something that I have a feeling I'm going to have to be doing for a long time. I wrote this book with the idea that I just did not want to have to explain or over-explain, that I wanted my family to be able to remain on the page as they are, not translating Cantonese, not translating who they are, not having to call them a Chinese-American family, but an American family. We don't have to justify our stories. Exactly. We're just here. We're just here. We're here. Kat Chow, thank you so much. Seeing Ghosts is out now. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 